Well, as we have already said, this New Year's Day presents a whole new year in front of us. And we have no way of knowing what's going to happen in that this coming 2023. Uh, but um, we can be reasonably certain that we will face some challenges, uh, we will receive many blessings, and chances are we're going to need each other in getting through it. In looking at uh, a biblical framework to, uh, in, in which to couch the, the message that I believe God has put on my heart for today, I have chosen Nehemiah. Now, some of you have recently, in Sunday school, gone through some chapters in Nehemiah, I believe. So for you, this may be a, a review. But looking at chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and half of 6 gives us what we need to know for this morning's message. We are not going to read all of the verses in all of those chapters. So you can breathe a sigh of relief. But these chapters do contain something that I believe is important for us as we anticipate a new year, as we look forward to what God is going to do in and through us in this year. Now, <clears throat> there are some historical background pieces that need to be held in place. Uh, I really enjoy history, and I try not to impose that on anybody else because I know not everybody does. But some things are important. You will recall that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came to Jerusalem. They conquered Jerusalem in 586 or 87 B.C., and they burned the city, they tore down the walls, they destroyed the temple, and anyone whom they perceived as being a threat in terms of leading a rebellion or causing some kind of uh, inciting uh, to riots or that kind of thing, they carried them back to Babylon so they could keep an eye on them. The people they left back in Jerusalem were what we might call the riffraff or the, the people who were uneducated and unmotivated of people who were not likely to cause any trouble. So <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar took these folks back to Babylon, and this is the captivity, the Babylonian captivity you've heard about. Well, 50 years or so has passed. Nebuchadnezzar has gone off the scene. The Medes and Persians have arisen and Darius the king has decided it's okay for the Jews to go back. So in 535 B.C., Zerubbabel took 42,000 people back to Jerusalem. A few years later, in about 520 B.C., Ezra took some other people back to Jerusalem. And by 516, they had rebuilt the temple and dedicated it. Well, now several more years have passed, and it's about 450 B.C. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. That's an important 
position in the court. He tastes the food and, and uh, takes a drink of the Pepsi before the king just to make sure that it's not poison. Uh, so Nehemiah has lived this long, so we assume the king has not been poisoned. And Nehemiah, being a Jew, hears that there's a contingency coming back from Jerusalem to report to the king how things are going. Nehemiah is excited about it. He wants to hear the good news about what's happening in Jerusalem. So he, he listens in. And what he discovers is so discouraging. The gates are still destroyed. They haven't been rebuilt. The wall is still rubble. The people are unmotivated. They have no direction, no gumption. And Nehemiah is just absolutely destroyed by this news. So he begins to pray about it. And he's saying, Lord, please do something about this. Well, little does he realize that in his prayers, God is answering them with himself. So finally, he gets the idea that God wants him to do something. Being the cupbearer of the king, he's got a, a not a relationship, close contact with the king. I mean, they're not bosom buddies. They don't just talk about the weather and stuff. But the king sees that Nehemiah, and he says, what's wrong with you? Nehemiah says, how can I act like nothing's wrong when the, the city of my chaos? And the king says, well, what do you want to do about it? So Nehemiah says, uh, well, I'd like a leave of absence. And probably not in those words, but that's what he was saying. I want a leave of absence. I want to go back. I, I want to lead the people to rebuild the walls. And he's preparing to be shot down by the king every, every second. And the king turns to the queen and says, what do you think? And they talk about it a little bit. And finally the king said, okay. And Nehemiah said, well, as long as you're going to let me go back, would you send letters to the governors of the provinces through which we'll be traveling, allowing me to get whatever building materials we're going to need? And the king said, eh, okay. So he went back to Jerusalem with the king's authority, with the king's blessing, with the king's uh, certification that he can get from whatever province he goes through, whatever he needs. Chapter 2 begins. He goes to Jerusalem. It's worse than he thought. It takes three days to say hello in their culture. So they had this big, you know, whoop-de-doo. For three days, they welcomed each other and all this. At the end of the time, Nehemiah went out at night riding this mule to survey the damage, and it was awful. 
the Bible records some of this. Some of it was so thick, the walls had been torn down the, and the stones were lying so thick that the horse couldn't even get through them. So he had to go back. And no doubt Nehemiah is wondering, why in the world did I think this could be done? But in chapter 2, as he, as he begins to, to think about it, verse 11, uh, I stayed there three days, 13 by night I went through the valley, and then 17, he calls the people together, verse 17 of chapter 2. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls and we will no longer be a disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. <coughs> Excuse me. Folks, I have been in enough Baptist business meetings, and so have you, to suspect that it didn't happen quite this smoothly. You know what I'm saying? Nehemiah says, come, let us rebuild the walls and we will no longer be a disgrace. And somebody said, how much is this going to cost? Somebody else said, who do you think we are? Contractors? We don't know nothing about building no wool. And on it went. But finally, it must have been the Spirit of the Lord. I can think of no other way this could have happened. The Spirit of God entered that place and entered those people, and their hearts were changed, and they said, let us arise and build. What? They're exactly right. They aren't contractors. Look at some of chapter 3. We see some interesting things here. <coughs> well, it starts, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priest went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred. And if you read through chapter 3, that's what it's like. These people worked on this part of the wall. These other people worked on this gate. And these people from this distant town worked on this part of the wall. And all around the wall it went. <coughs> it's pretty boring stuff. However, when you think about it, and when you consider how unlikely it was that this could even happen, it's miraculous. They're coming together to do something they couldn't have even imagined. Uh, verse 5, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles 
would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors, there's always going to be some naysayers, you know. There are going to be some folks who said, not me. No, I I'm not doing that. And here they are, right here. But you know what the men of Tekoa did? They did two other sections in addition to this to make up for the laziness of their nobles. That's what they did. Or consider verse 8. Uziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repeated, uh, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repair, repairs next to that. A jeweler and a cologne maker working side by side, building a wall. What do they know about building a wall? Not much. In fact, for a long time, biblical scholars doubted that this actually happened. They couldn't find any real evidence of that. But in 2007, <clears throat> there was a, a tower that was crumbling in Jerusalem, and the Antiquities Authority decided we want to shore up this crumbling tower. So they commissioned an archaeologist uh, to lead in doing this work. It seemed like pretty straightforward work. But as she got into it, she realized that this is something completely different than they thought. And what she discovered was Nehemiah's wall, or parts of it. And the more they got into it, the more they realized how accurate this is. Because the wall that they built was not built by professionals. The foundation was not laid by people who had a lot of time and expertise. They did the best they could in the time they had, but the wall reveals that this was not a perfect job. But the Bible doesn't present it as such. It says these people did extraordinary things working together. Verse 12, Shalom, son of Halosheth, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. There was no glass ceiling on this project. So on it goes through chapter 3, describing the repairs. In chapter 4, opposition arises in the form of three guys, Sanballat, Geshem, and Tobiah. They are what we might call tribal leaders. They were important people. Uh, leading people groups in that area, and they had no interest whatsoever in seeing Jerusalem have a defensive wall. They wanted to keep Jerusalem a victim. They wanted to keep Jerusalem weak and defenseless. So they were opposing at every hand. At first, they tried ridicule. Uh, 
Tobiah said, look what they're building. If a fox climbed on this wall, he would tear it down. Well, ridicule didn't work. In verse 6 of chapter 4, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. But opposition continued. Sometimes the opposition came in the form of muscles that were so weary they couldn't continue working. Verse 10, meanwhile the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They got discouraged. And also our enemies said, before they know it or see it, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Let's face it, ridicule is one thing, but getting killed can ruin your whole day. So how did the people respond? They're already tired. They're already discouraged. And now these three and their peoples threaten to come in and kill them. So how do they respond? Verse 16. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. This is inspiring stuff. They refused to be intimidated. But in chapter 5, what Tobiah and Geshem and Sanballat couldn't accomplish, the people almost did themselves. They began to quarrel within themselves. And it almost brought the work to a halt. And Nehemiah stepped in and with the aid of the, of the Spirit fashioned a, a compromise and the people continued on. He reminded them of their mission, what we are about, what we're doing, what God is leading us to accomplish. So they continued to work until in chapter 6. Verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, the month of Elul, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Now, <clears throat> what an interesting story this is. And we know that it's true. It happened. But it's not just a story. So what is it that God might want us 
to take them from these few chapters of Nehemiah as we face a new year, 2023. Let me suggest just a few things. First of all, <clears throat> Nehemiah spent a lot of time praying before this vision became a fully formed in his own mind. We can't expect as a church or as individuals for that matter, as we make our individual or family resolutions, we can't expect vision to come to us fully formed all of a sudden. It's as we think about it, pray about it, begin to associate the needs with our skills that a vision becomes reality or it becomes fully formed. And then once the vision becomes formed, we commit ourselves to that vision. Most of you are familiar with the work of Henry Blackaby in Experiencing God. He reminds us that while many times we pray, Lord, give us a vision, or Lord, give us a goal. Help us to know what to do. Blackaby reminds us that God is already at work around us, and what we need to be praying for is vision enough to see what God is doing and then courage enough to join him in whatever that is. Nehemiah prayed for a vision, and this vision came to him, a, a mission that he himself should go. Not only did he go to rebuild the wall, but he was appointed governor, and in that position as governor, he was able to keep the conflict from destroying the work. His prayer was that God would do something, and God did through him. And as we become more and more spiritually minded, as we become more and more aware of the Holy Spirit's guiding, guiding in our family of believers, our vision would become clearer and clearer to us. In this new year, one of the blessings we are praying for is the blessing of a new pastor. And I am not only joining you in that prayer, I am leading that prayer. Soon we expect a pastor search committee will be formed and uh, they will be receiving resumes and the search will begin in earnest, and we are praying in earnest, aren't we? Not only for that person, but also for ourselves, that we will be so sensitive to the Spirit that we will be led, not because we're looking for those signposts but because the spirit within us simply moves us in the direction God wants us to go. 
So we need a vision. We're praying for a vision. We expect a vision. A mission. A mission to materialize. God provides the mission. And the missions might be different in different parts of the year to come. But it will require us all. Paul reminded the Corinthians that every Christian has been given a spiritual gift, or more than one perhaps. I, uh, I like what Rick Warren has said about this. He calls it our shape. Every Christian has a shape. And that stands for spiritual gift, heart, abilities, personality, and experience. We have spiritual gifts that enable us to do some things very well. We also have heart or a passion for things. We have interests that one is interested in one kind of thing and someone else in something else. Our hearts direct us in God's work as well. Our abilities what we're able to do well, our personalities and our experiences. Warren once said, God never wastes an experience. He said, you've been through what you've gone through to help others get through what they're going through. So our shapes, all that we are, all that makes us who we are, is a part of what God will use collectively together as one and all we are committed to the mission God unveils. I don't know what 2023 is going to be like. I don't know when the new pastor is going to be chosen. I don't know what kind of plagues <laughs> might be waiting on the horizon, but I know this. 2023 is God's year, just like every other year. And we are God's people, so we don't have anything of which to be afraid with confidence, together, one and all, relying on each other, relying on each other's shapes. We will move into 2003 as a church triumphant. 